give these guys a hand for leading us, man. These guys were, were all here warming up while y'all were in line for Starbucks. Uh, and so we just appreciate them all serving. Um, well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we're saved by Jesus' work. We're changed by Jesus' grace, and we're living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so part of how we do that is as we gather together each Sunday, we, we sing his praises. Like, that's not a normal thing. I don't know what other environments in your life that, that you sing with other people at. Um, and so we, we sing praises to our king. And, and then we, we get together and we open up God's word. And in doing so, we want to see God's story impact and influence and transform our story. Uh, and, and so um, often we preach right through books of the Bible, but a couple weeks ago we began a new series called The Story of Everything. Uh, and in that, we said, hey, we want to take a, a step back. We want to kind of go to the, to the, to the 20,000, you know, 10,000 foot level and get an overview of God's big story of everything that we find in the Bible. And we actually began a couple weeks ago in the middle, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, as he's walking with um, some disciples, and, and Jesus, um, these guys didn't know it was him, they were a little disoriented, they were despairing, their, their, their hearts were broken, they just seen Jesus dead and buried, and Jesus is like, hey, I, I'm going to lead you through an Old Testament Bible study of pointing to how all of the Old Testament points to and anticipates the arrival of Jesus Christ into human history. And so we said, hey, let's start in the beginning and just be reminded that Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, letters, Psalms, uh, prophets, the law, all those things, the, the 66 books of the Bible with a variety of genres written over you know, a, a huge span of time across four continents with over 40 human authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, are all like a choir singing one chorus about one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we just believe that all of the Bible is about Jesus. And so last week then we, we kind of rewound and went to the beginning, the, like, like the very beginning, like in the beginning God, creating all things, creating the heavens and earth, creating you and I, creating us male and female, creating us for a purpose. And we said, hey, let's be reminded as we read the Bible that there is an author to this story and there is a main character and hero to this story. And while the story is for us, it's not ultimately about us. It's about God. It's about Jesus. And that leads us here to, to week three. So hopefully on your way in, uh, if you don't have it, you got a copy of our discipleship guide, The Story of Everything. We're going to be in week three. First week was story all about Jesus. Second week, the story of his creation. And here we are in week three, the story of our fall. And so today, we're going to be uh, spending most of our time in Genesis chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, and so as you turn there, it shouldn't take you long, just a couple pages in uh, to the Bible. Uh, I just want you to, to maybe ask yourself, or maybe just ponder for a moment, is the world we live in a good place or a bad place? Is it a place of joy and beauty and delight and purpose? Or is it a place of pain, suffering, loss, death, and despair? Think about that. I would say that the answer that the story of everything gives, the answer that the Bible gives to that question, is the world good ultimately or bad ultimately, is yes. It, it's, it's actually both. 
Right? I mean, we experience that on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. When you think about the story and trajectory of your lives, is it not a story that includes a mixture of beauty and joy and good things and also difficulty and despair and pain and suffering and sorrow? Yeah, these two things are together. And so maybe you're like, hey, hold up. Last week we were in chapter 1, and God made everything and called it good. He made you and I, he made humanity, and he said it was very good. So what went wrong? Like, 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 like is God like this kind of craftsman that like puts it all together, leaves it alone, and it just falls apart? Like maybe it's, maybe it's ultimately God's fault. Like he made it, and, and now it's just, man, it's just not going so well. Well, I would submit to you that God didn't get it wrong. We did. And so the, his creation's good. His purposes for us are good and, and perfect and right and good. And somewhere along the way, we are the ones that went wrong. That in the midst of a garden paradise, in the midst of unfathomable liberty and pleasure and joy and purpose, that we are the ones that traded that in. And, and, and because of that, there's sin, there's evil, there's death. We saw last week that God gave them kind of one law one shall not. He's like, you can eat of the tree, any tree in the garden uh, you want. Your job is to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, chapter 2 ends with them being naked and unashamed. Purpose, like, hey, this, this can be a fun party. It's going to be good times, right? And, and pretty quickly on, you're, you're thinking, well, hey, whoa, there's, what's this rule business about? Well, I want to be clear, and I might come back to it again later, that God's not some sort of cosmic killjoy that like if you, if you grew up in the, in the 90s or had a computer at that point, um, and, and like you got a computer, but your parents didn't get you any games, the only games are the ones that came on it, and there was a game called Minesweeper. Anybody remember Minesweeper? Just clicking around, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're done. You didn't get it right. Like it wasn't like God's like, ha, I'm going to put a little, one little tree, you'll figure it out, Russian roulette of fruit, right? No. The, the, the purpose of it actually was that while God gave us great liberty, freedom, purpose, he also wanted us to, and you and I, to live real lives with real choices, and that includes choices around obedience. Choices around declaring your independence from God or displaying with great humility but also confidence your dependence on God. So when you think about something like forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we'll talk about here in a moment, I don't want you to think about God setting us up to fail. I want you to think about a good, wise, powerful God, that's what we talked about last week, who then is also giving us humanity made in his image and likeness and purpose, the ability for us to, to live out lives of joy, lives of purpose, that also include lives of obedience to God and lives that display our dependence on God. And so here we are, Genesis chapter 3, broken up to a few sections. We're going to start with verses 1 through 6. End of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. Things are going well. Here we are. We've met God, the creator, the author of the story. We've met Jesus, the hero of the story. We've met our, we know that we as humanity are players in the story. And now we've got a new character in the story. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, come back to that, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die? For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. All right, let's stop. So as I said, we have the author of the story, that's God. We have the hero of the story, that's Jesus. We have you and I, players in the story, and now we've been added into this other character here, this this serpent, this kind of sneaky snake character, right? And and maybe you're like, hey, God made all the animals good and, and, and whatnot, and you're like, you know, hey, I mean, I think some of us just intrinsically know that snakes are icky and awful. Like, uh, no, no joke, if you bring a snake, if somebody showed up right here, right now, there's a couple, uh, like, animals you don't bring. Don't bring a spider, right? Like a big one, especially. You bring a snake and just let it loose, perhaps on a plane, right? I mean, it gets, like, four, four things on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know. But, like, terrifying. Nobody likes snakes. Okay, was it just a snake? No, it says the serpent, Later on, we'll read in the Bible in Revelation 12, 9, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this snake represents Satan himself, the enemy of God, the enemy of God's, of God's plans and purposes, the enemy of your and my flourishing and life, this villain comes in, and, and I want you to also have a right perspective because sometimes, you know, we, watch, we watch a lot of movies, we watch a lot of shows, and man, the villains, they're always so powerful. Like, it takes eight different Marvel characters to sync up to, like, beat one villain, right? And so I think we think about that when we think about the enemy. When we think about an enemy to God, that somehow he's the overpowering one, and God's just like the soft, weak one. No, don't think about this as yin and yang, like good and evil, like, like they're evenly matched, like, like, like the Vegas betting odds are like it's a, it's a pick em. who knows how it's going to go. No, there is God who's the creator of everything, spoke it all into existence, and this story, spoiler alert, ends with God winning, okay? So we don't have to worry that, that Satan's going to somehow win. Satan is already a defeated enemy, and yet it says he's, he's craftier than any other beast in the field. He's clearly even wiser and craftier than humanity is at, at certain points for sure. And so in this case, we see that his superpower, if you will, and ah, man, I don't even like superhero movies. I'll just stop with that. Satan's ability is to deceive. It is to lie. It is to distort created reality and make you believe that what is actually true and real and right and good is somehow wrong or less than to get you to doubt what's actually true. And so he gets humanity to willingly, I want to be clear, willingly exchange the truth about God for lies, a life of delight, and instead have to suffer death and despair and suffering. 
And he does this in a few ways, and, and Satan screws us up, he jams us up, and then we do a good job of jamming ourselves up, which we'll see here as well. Number one, um, Satan works by doubting and helping us cast doubt on God's word. Like, and this happens so much often now, right? You got people deconstructing left and right, and it's that same question from Genesis 3. Did God's word really say? God's, God's holding out on you. My God, are you still religious? Are, are you, wait, do you still believe that there's only men and women? Huh. How, how gauche of you. Like, no, like, he is always getting us to somehow doubt God's word. That's how it starts. It's, it's a hook. Hey, did God really say? And then, and then he, he doesn't just get us to doubt God's word. He also gets us to distort God's word because he said, did God really say you can't eat of any of the trees? Of course God didn't say that. He put them in the garden. He said, go and feast and then learn about how the garden's working and then go do that to the rest of the world. Purpose, life, joy. And so the serpent says, you know, hey, um, you know, you're not going to die. You're not going to actually suffer any consequence. And, and God, as we said, he said you can eat any tree of the garden except for one. Just, 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 hey, that's just there so you can display your reliance and your obedience. And so, like I said, not a trap that God set. And so the first assault that the enemy wages against humanity is to get us to doubt God's word and also then to doubt God's character. Remember, we spent a lot of time last week, and you can find it online if you want to, looking at God's power, wisdom, goodness, love, grace, mercy, justice, truth. And instead, the enemy comes in here and says, God's word's not good. In fact, actually, God's really not that good. I mean, do you know, he's holding out on you. There's so much more life than what God has given you here in the garden, naked and unashamed. So he makes a sideways jab at God's character. He, he gets them to doubt God's word. And then you see Eve, she starts to respond, and, and she's parroting something likely that maybe she's, she's heard before. But what we do when we uh, encounter sin is we take God's word, and we distort it too. And sometimes we, sometimes we discard it, right? Other times we distort it. And part of how we can distort God's word is God's word and, and like his His. Uh, yoke is easy and burden is light. And then we make it heavy by creating a whole bunch of legalisms. You're like, oh, what, is, what, what is he talking about legalisms? Like, she's, she's just talking about not eating the food. Well, let me tell you. Um, God's word said, don't eat of the fruit or you'll die of this one tree. Eve doesn't say that. Eve says, oh, if we eat it, we die. If we touch it, we'll die. Just, just add an extra step. What's, what's the harm in it? I mean, if it's a tree that's going to, you know, plunge all of eternity into, you know, death and destruction, I mean, maybe go ahead and put a fence around it. Or at least, like, I don't know, get a label maker and be like, not that one, right? No, but what has happened is there's been some sort of breakdown because it was Adam who was given God's word about the tree. That all happened before Eve shows up on the scene. So there's a breakdown in what we'd say now is, is gospel-centered discipleship. So instead of, hey, let me just tell you about how good God is. Let me tell you about our purpose. Um, did, did he mention the be fruitful and multiply part, right? Like, like we're going to do that, you know, like all these different things. Instead, Adam's like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's one tree we're not supposed to eat. In fact, you know what? Scratch that. Just don't even touch it. In fact, you know what? Let's not even go in that area. Well, it's kind of tough. It's, it says it's in the midst of the garden. It's kind of in the middle. It's unavoidable. 
And so we do this. We add one more layer of legalism, thinking that somehow that's what's going to save us, that's what's going to protect us, when what, like no amount of legislation, no amount of following the law or the rules is going to change your heart. Right? She it says she desired the fruit. Like there's aspects of our hearts that need to change and be transformed. And I'm not saying let's go all lawless and just do whatever you want. Absolutely not. Like God's word is clear on how we're to live, what flourishing looks like, what justice looks like, all these different things, how humanity is supposed to function. But the sin problem isn't just an external problem. It's an internal problem with our hearts. And so she continues this conversation with the enemy the serpent, and the enemy goes on to say, hey, there's no consequences for your sin. You're not going to die. Okay, so now he's, again, lying about God's justice. What God said, not true. So now he's, he went from kind of doubting God's word, distorting God's word, going a little bit after God's character, to now saying, no, no, God is actually lying to you. God is not the source of life and truth and joy. God is a liar. It's quite a charge. But by this point, the hook's in. It's starting to sink down. And so he's saying, hey, there's no consequences for you disobeying God. And that's been an ethos. I just want to be clear. Like, it seems like it permeates our culture a little bit more now. But let's just be honest. It's been there, we see, from the beginning. That we believe somehow that we can divorce ourselves from the creator of the universe, the one who makes life, makes joy, makes pleasure, makes purpose, and somehow... By divorcing from that, we won't die? Like, I mean, I've said this often, like, you know, just try hacking off a few limbs from your tree. It might look good for a while. Go leave it out back in your backyard. It's going to die because it's disconnected from the source of life. When we're disconnected from the source of life, there's really only one trajectory for us. And so he goes on, you know, hey, God's holding out on you. God's not for you. He doesn't want good things for you. God wants to keep you from reaching your full potential, right? I mean, you know good now, but have you considered evil? Like, you can have that attitude. And here, here's what's amazing about what Satan says and, and, and how tricky his lies are. Hey, you'll be like God. Hold up. Let's go back to chapter 1 and 2. Men and women, male and female, he made them in his image. Humanity was and is already made in God's image. I don't know more how more like God you can be than made in his image. And so Satan's saying, like I said, that he's held on out on you. You're adding the knowledge of evil. And, and somehow Satan's sending this lie out that if you add the knowledge of evil, that's progress. That's so progressive. Oh, you just added that to the... Man, that's so, that's so tolerant of you. That's so in, inclusive of you. I'm like, oh, wow. Man, I just think about our society over maybe the last four, five, six years. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, it used to be if you stole stuff, like, you go to jail. And now, like, we're locking up toothpaste, uh, you know, at the drugstore. And you have to go ask for help. Or maybe I need to move to a better area. I don't know. Like, right? That's not progress. Like, just like, we're just not going to, you know, we're not going to punish crime anymore. Not progress. But here's the enemy again, just saying, hey, just add a little evil. 
oh man, it's, you're going you're gonna to be more like God. He's holding out on you. You might remember a movie from a long time ago called The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves. Um, it wasn't The Matrix, but it was like it. Um, and uh, Keanu Reeves is in it, and, and uh, Al Pacino plays the devil, which I think was probably just like an aspiration of his for a long time, um, right? If you know like, any Al Pacino movies, I feel like that's all he plays is the devil. Uh, and, and at one point, Pacino just like looks at Keanu Reeves, and he's like, I'm a fan of man. And, and you're just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the devil, he's a fan of humanity. No more impressions today. Um, like, he's a fan of humanity. No, another lie. Like, I just want to be clear. God is for you. God is for us. God is a fan of man because God made us. We're his creation. The Genesis 2 said we are his workmanship. He says we are the highest created beings there is. He put the most effort, time, intentionality in humanity. There's not a bigger fan in the cosmos of humanity, spiritually speaking, than the God who made humanity. So let's not buy lies. Let's not buy anti-human lies that somehow divorcing ourselves from God is going to lead to greater life. So here's Eve. She's hook-baited. She still hasn't quite bitten down yet. Verses uh, actually talk about her internal process. She goes through. She sees, hey, it, it's, the, the, okay, let me think about this. All right, the fruit, it's, it's good for food. Okay, it can, be, it can be profitable. It was a delight to the eyes. Oh, I mean, yeah, it was a delight to the eyes. God created it, right? I, like, let, let's, let's give Eve some credit here, and, and Adam here in a minute as well. Like, it wasn't like, hey, like, come and eat this, you know, maggot-infested banana, like, no, it was, it was good-looking fruit. Again, the, I don't even know that it was mystical or magical. Like, I, I, I really truly believe that it, this is to show us obedience, humility, dependence on God. And so here she is. She has this choice. Will I trust in my ability to discern what's right and good, or will I just simply trust God's Word? Will I trust God's Word over my feelings? Will I trust God's word over my lived experience? Will I trust God's word over the course of culture? Will I, do, will I trust God's word over the direction of our society? Even if it's difficult, even if it might require a sacrifice of not eating something that seems good and delightful. See, the enemy, enemy was telling her, hey, you're going to be like God if you eat this. And so Adam and Eve are saying, hey, we could still have all of the garden and none of the God. And that's the choice that we've been making for a long time. We want all of the good things that come from God without the relationship with God, without the obedience to God, without the allegiance to God. And so here she is. She takes this step, and the the enemy's invitation is, if you just take this step, of self-determination, you're going to grow in wisdom when, when in fact what's happening is they're betraying reality. God set things up in a way. God has a design. And so he, he's, he's tricky, though, too, because he doesn't say, Eve, I want you to pledge your allegiance to myself, the, the serpent, because she'd be like, I don't know. I mean, you're just like a snake. No, instead he does something that's way more easy and palatable for us to deal with. Don't pledge allegiance to Satan. Just pledge allegiance to yourself. Get up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror. That's my God. And here we are, 
millennia later, and we're still narcissists. We're still selfish. We're still being ruled by our desires, by our direction, by, by us as the highest authority. Man, it was... Just pledge allegiance to yourself. And so she bites down. And once she bites down and, and joins this cult of self, and she's a pretty effective evangelist. I mean, you know, wives can be kind of convincing at getting their husbands to do things. And so here we are, like she bites down, and then she then hands the fruit to Adam, who we see is there, and she becomes an, an evangelist for this cult of self. We'll talk about Adam here for a second, but like Adam bites down, they've both eaten. And so, before we go nuts on, on Eve here, like, there's kind of this plot twist in verse 6. Her husband, who was with her, like, I remember growing up hearing this story, uh, right, in church and stuff, and I just assumed, like, like, Eve's kind of, like, you know, there scrolling on her phone. Okay, that wasn't a thing back when I was young, but, um, like, like, she's just scrolling her phone, seeing the reels, and it's just like, oh, yeah, this looks good, this sounds good. And, you know, Adam, he's just out in the garage, you know, cleaning up or doing something. No, no, they're both there together. Adam heard every ridiculous charge against God that the enemy made, and he was just like, hmm, yeah, you know, that's good. No, babe, honey, actually, honey, can you just take care of this? Yeah, you, you, you talk to him. I, I, I got other things to do. Adam was given a specific charge in chapter 2 to guard and keep the garden, to work it and to protect it. Was Adam's charge alone? No, he was given it first, and then God said, hey, you're going to need a helper suitable, a complementary relationship of two people made equal in the eyes of the Lord, but different and distinct, to carry this out. And Adam lets Eve, who he's supposed to pastor, disciple, share God's word to, he lets her get taken beyond the theological woodshed by the enemy, and then by the time she buys it hook, line, and sinker, he's like, happy wife, happy life. And it's just like, I'll, I'll do it too. There wasn't a hint of, hey, Satan, serpent, whatever. Like, that's not what God said. I heard him say, I was there. I don't know if you were. I heard him say, we're not supposed to eat it. I heard him say, we're going to die if we do. I heard him say, there's consequences. I heard God say, hey, you know, here's woman. Like, this is a good thing for you to be in this relationship. I, I already heard these. No, he didn't say, hey, snake, get away from my wife. And so these two, like, like figureheads of humanity have set the course for generations of us now where they were in a perfect environment. And so we should have some mercy and grace for them because I, I, I almost feel in, 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 like if, if you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're like, dang it, they ruined it for everybody. Let's just not pretend we do any better. They were in the best of circumstances. They heard God's word directly. And here we are. The man did nothing to stop this. Maybe you've heard the quote by um, Edmund Burke, a uh, famous quote that says, all it takes for evil uh, to flourish is for good men to do nothing. And here we see that all it takes for evil to advance at times is for good men to say nothing. Adam was silent. They both take a bite. And here we'll see the results in the next verses. We've got to keep going. Verses 7 through 19. I'll read for a second. We'll talk about it. 
Okay, so verse 6. Husband who was with her, he ate. Verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent in verse 14, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, hold on to this one. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, or the, or the NIV says, he will crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here we are. Immediate result. They eat. It says, eyes were opened. Now, we might read that wrongly and think, oh, they were blind and now they see. No. Eyes and hearts were opened, not illuminated. So I want you to think about it this way. As you're driving on the flats between Everett and Marysville, you've got the beautiful E.B. Slough. I could be wrong on my map, but it's so much river, all that. Beautiful E.B. Slough. And you look just past that, and you see these two giant, like, bodies of water that are square and have, like, pumps and stuff on them. Anybody know what that is? That's all of our toilets drain into that, okay? When they say their eyes were opened, I want you to think about the earthen dam between that river and that pile of our crap being breached, and now it's flooded into that area. They had hearts and eyes that saw and knew good, and now they've had evil added to it. Not a good mix. You ain't water skiing on that. Sure ain't drinking it. And so here they are. They've had evil added. They're feeling shame. Um, they start covering themselves with self-doubt. They have a break in trust and intimacy and security. They, they look at one another. Oh, man, we're naked. I, I, can't, I can't be fully seen with you. I can't be seen with you. And, and before there's intimacy and joy, there's now shame and separation. And they start this, this well, we do this, this half-hearted trying to cover up our own stuff. Maybe I can fix it. And we'll make some clothes out of some fiddly figs over here. And, and, and that seems to work for a second. Like, right away you can just sense that the two of them are about to go on a road trip and they're not going to talk the whole time. Right? There's just that tension. I'm the only one that's been on that trip? Okay. 
Come on. Right? But you feel it. You're so close yet so far. That's where they are. Because there's sin. There's brokenness. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden they're like, uh-oh, God might be around. They go hide in the bushes, forgetting that, like, God has that Terminator vision where he can just kind of see through, you know, all, like, like, come on. If we've got, like, heat sensor drones, I think God can probably find you in a bush hanging out. And so he's like, hey, guys, where are you at? He's not really asking. Like, if you've got little kids and they play hide-and-seek sometimes really badly, they're like, hey, oh, where are you? I don't see you. You're invisible, right? But they're fearful, right? In their sin, in their shame, and their brokenness, they don't run to each other for encouragement. They don't run to God for forgiveness. No, they just hide and run from God. They're like, oh, no, God is good, powerful, wise. Oh, shoot, he's also just. Because maybe they believed a lie for a second that sin won't lead to death. But all of a sudden, they're like, well, hold up. What if God's word was right? What if there is a consequence for sin? What if there is death? And so he calls them out, and they, they come out, and, and we see that, that God pursues us in our sin even while we try to hide it. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. We all got junk. We all got sin. We all got stuff that's off. And, and, and the enemy tries to get us to isolate from one another, to hide, to get away from God. And God is pursuing you. And he's pursuing you with patience. He's pursuing you with mercy and grace that we'll see here in a moment. So God shows them such great mercy and patience. And, and how, why can I say that? Well, if the consequences of sin are death, then at the moment that they've sinned, they should be gone. Hit reset. Let's just start this whole thing over, right? Old school Nintendo, pull the plug, right? Just, and then plug it back in. No, God's patient with them. We're going to see there is going to be consequences for sin, but God's patience is a kindness to draw us towards repentance. He doesn't immediately smoke them. We shouldn't see God's delayed justice as somehow God being weak, but we should see it as God being kind to us for the purposes of our repentance. And so rather than humbling ourselves with contrition and confession, sometimes when we don't face consequences for sin, it emboldens us, and we think we can just keep going down paths of destruction when God's call for us is repentance and life and forgiveness. And so he, he calls out to Adam, and, and Adam becomes the first litigating attorney in human history. And here he is. Like, he's like, Adam, what, what happened? You know, he's, he, Adam's like, well, we're naked. Who told you you're naked? Did you, did, you, did you break the law, the one tree law? And, and Adam's like, hold up. To be clear, that woman that you gave me, she caused me to do it. So really, God, your fault. Case dismissed, right? You know, bangs the gavel, you know. You can't handle the truth, right? And God's like, we'll get back to you, Adam, in a second. Um, Eve did, did, and you could just kind of see her seething, right? Like, like, he just threw me under the bus to God, right? Like, I mean, we're just a chapter away, guys. From Adam being alone, God saying this is the only thing in creation that's not good, God giving Adam a wife in Eve, and Adam responding, whoa, man, this is great, to that woman you gave me is why we're here. 
no ownership, no responsibility. He goes to Eve. Eve's like, devil made me do it. I don't know. You know, my, my past sins and trauma are, are, are because of that. My family of origin made me do it. I got to know, my therapist said that I'm in a toxic, you know, culture, and so that's why. Blame shifting, blame shifting, blame shifting. Devil made me do it. And so God goes and he talks to the serpent. He's got some serious words for the serpent pretty quickly. Um, Man, if if Eve couldn't trust her husband before, she's certainly not going to trust him now. Their separation grows. God's going to hold Adam accountable. That's what's interesting, right? He did not go to Eve first. He went to Adam first because Adam is who he gave God's word to. And so he tells uh, the serpent that you're the author of lies and that you're going to be cursed among all creation. There's going to be an ongoing battle between you and humanity. And yeah, here we are, several thousand years later. There's still a spiritual battle going on for souls, for our culture, for our society, for a God who's for us and an enemy who's against us, who is there to lie, steal, and destroy. And then God does address the woman. He says, hey, there's consequences for your sin. Like, like there's a twofold curse that we see here. He's like, you're still going to be the vehicle for the multiplication of humanity across the world. You're going to be the only one who can bring life into this world, carry life in your womb. What a blessing. And yet he says, the process of birthing that child is going to be painful. I think all the moms are like, yeah. Even with the epidural, probably still rough, right? That's going to be rough. But he also says that even in raising your children, there's going to be difficulty. That you're going to birth these little humans who are just like you, imperfect sinners, And some of them might break your heart. And some of them might also reject God or reject you or both. And that should drive us to be parents dependent on the Lord, parents of prayer, parents who know that it's only God who saves. We train our children up in the way that they should go. The hope is that they will not depart. That's a principle, not a promise. And so we, we pray and we show our dependence. That's a whole other sermon series. We'll leave that alone for now. And so there's challenges in parenting. There's challenges in relationships between parents and kids. And then this other aspect is not just with the woman and her kids. She said, there's going to be issues with you and your husband. She says, you're going to want to, your, your desire is going to be for him. You're going to want to rule over him. Then in some regards, you're going, to want to, you're going to want to take the role that God has designed him for. And so, man, this can get wonky, this can get weird, but the reality is, he's like, you're going to, you might find yourself being a, a dripping faucet, and men, we're not off the hook by any way, shape, or form, because what men do in response is either get more aggressive in their leadership, possibly even abusive, or... And just as bad, become apathetic, become absent, abandon the wife, abandon the family. And the consequences for our families 
and our, and our cities and our culture is rampant. I mean, just take a second and look at stats on, on broken families and the impact it has on the next generation in incarceration, education, poverty, health, all sorts of other outcomes. And so while this beautiful marriage relationship that was supposed to be and designed to be cooperatively complementarian, equal in value, distinct in roles, is not complementary, is not cooperative, but in, in fact will be contrarian conflict. The battle of the sexes was not how God designed things to be. And then God comes to the man. And he says, I want to be clear on this. What God's not saying here is, your big sin, Adam, was listening to your wife. Because if your little no application point is, do not listen to wife. You have missed the point of this sermon. Do not do that. And then wives, feel free to put in your notes, pastor did not say, do not listen to your wife. Okay? Do not tweet that I said that or exit or whatever it is now. Like, no, I did not say that. No, what he's saying is, you listened to your wife when she was opposed to the Word of God. You didn't disciple her. You didn't point her back to God's Word. You didn't say, hey, I know the serpent seems really tempting. I know that influencer on Instagram um, you know, said some really convincing things but we've gotten the character of God wrong. He's wise, he's good, he's powerful, he's just. God is for us, not against us. We're in his image. We're like him. He's, we already have good. We don't need evil. That was his sin. I mean, God had given the wife to Adam and used the same word he uses to describe the Holy Spirit as a helper, a paraclete. And so, like, like I mean, our, our wives have wisdom. Men have wisdom. Like, like, we're meant to be together to then sharpen one another. And so he says, it's going to be difficult for you, though, because you failed to teach. You failed to guard. You didn't lovingly correct or admonish her. You just submitted to her horrible theology. You followed her wicked practice in disobeying God. And he says, so work's going to be a place of toil for you now. You were placed in a garden with a purpose to go cultivate. Now you're going to work, and it's going to be hard. And we're like, oh, okay, makes sense. Monday's coming, right? And work is made for us. It's part of our purpose. But because of sin and brokenness in the world, it at times is toil and works against itself. So sometimes you're, you know, in the midst of trying to remodel your 70-year-old church building, and then pipes burst every year like clockwork. And you're like, all right, toil, work and toil, work and toil. There's no boilers in heaven. Okay? And then the lights always work. It's going to be great. Okay. Our freedom is now replaced with struggle. We were made to rule over animals and creation, and now he says you're going to work the ground, and it is going to just destroy you. You're supposed to be over the animals and the plants. They're actually going to rule over you. And so now, like, we start in a garden full of delight, and now we get plants from the ground they get turned into opioids that enslave us and send us back to the ground, keeping us from our God-given purpose, robbing us of our human dignity. This is 
a result of the fall. This is why things are difficult. So we end up exploiting creation and turn it rules over us. Eventually we're swallowed up in death. There's also things in the earth that are just difficult. Like you're like, oh my gosh, it's not just humanity. Like, wait, there's earthquakes, there's storms, there's frigid cold, there's heat. Romans 8, 20 and 22 says this, for the creation, meaning everything, because of sin was subject to futility. Verse 22, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So our, our story of everything literally does cover everything. You're like, natural disasters, is it because I drive an SUV? No, sin impacted everything. So we have natural disasters. We have disease and decay. We have earthquakes and storms and heat and cold and avalanches and floods. And so everything that we build begins to fall into decay, right? So we just become people like we just maintenance all the time because everything is always falling apart. And as we, as we do this, we just aren't flourishing. We're, we're just frustrated over and over again. And, and, and it just reminds us that every time we attempt independence from God, it will never lead to your flourishing. It will always lead to your frustration. The story of everything, the curse, our fall, covers all that is broken in the world. So as Christians, we have a framework for suffering. We have a framework for pain. We have a framework for sin and separation and shame. And we have a framework for mercy and grace. I mean, this has been a heavy time, guys. This has been a heavy text. We need some good news. And, and what's amazing is that even in the midst of the, well, I would say, the, the darkest moments here in the Bible, there's such good news last verses, we get to see some of God's mercy and grace, and maybe not in ways you see it right away, but we're going to close with some good news. You guys want some good news? I think we need some good news. All right. Genesis 3, 20 through 24. The man called his wife named Eve because she's the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's, that's like an um, angel guard, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And you're like, hold up, how is that good news? I thought the garden was going to be great. So we've been hard on Adam and Eve, and I think rightly so. But also I want you to know, yes, Adam and Eve were absolutely the first sinners, and we see here, Adam and Eve were also the first recipients of God's mercy and grace. See, man is now this rebel. There's not a place for him in a garden to commune with God. God's like, there's evil now. I've got this garden. Like, these two things can't mix. And so God, in his mercy, actually sacrifices an animal for them. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, it says God made them like clothing of skins. 
An animal had to be sacrificed. God right away was saying, sin has a cost. The wages of sin is death. God then provides a sacrifice. And the animal then makes skins. And God takes that that clothing that God makes and uses it to clothe their sin and shame. God did that. God covers their shame. God sacrificed for them. They didn't earn that. That was God's grace to them. And then he also shows great mercy to them. They're like, mercy? He kicked them out of the garden. No, God's being merciful to them because God's like, they know evil now. They know sin now. What would happen if they ate from the tree of eternal life? They'd live forever. I want to live forever. No, not in a world with sin. That's not heaven. That's hell. And so he says their time on this earth is going to have to end. That is a mercy to them. That Adam and Eve don't have to hang around in 2024 around here. That after their days were over, they got to go home. A picture of sacrifice, a picture of holiness, a picture of grace and mercy. See, God will eventually end the days of this world and we will either enjoy eternal life with him in paradise or we will be separated from him. And so if this was the end of the story, this this would be a terrible, like, wow, three-chapter story. God created all good. Here's purpose, death. No, this isn't the end of the story. Theologian J. Gresham Meachin says it this way. It's a sad story indeed but it's the beginning and not the end of the Bible. The first chapters of the Bible tell us of the sin of man. The guilt of that sin has rested upon every single one of us. It's guilt and it's terrible results. But that's not the last of the Bible. The Bible tells us not only of man's sin, it also tells us of something greater still. It tells us of the grace of the offended God. The story of our fall is a chapter in the story of everything that includes God's mercy and grace to us. This is where we see Jesus in the story. If you back up a little bit to verse 15, you see that God speaks and he he preaches this first gospel. Theological word is proto-evangelion, if you want to look that up. First good news, first gospel, that the serpent will do something that will strike the heel of the Savior. God says, a Savior is going to come born of a woman. So while, while the woman was the one where sin enters, the Savior is the one that will come from a woman. Born of a woman. And that Savior, it will say, the serpent will strike his heel. That's why I said the NIV translates it. But he will crush the serpent's head. It will look like the enemy's going to win, but the enemy will suffer defeat. That is a foreshadow of what Jesus does on the cross. That Satan looks like he's going to win. That the Savior, King of God's people, is crucified. That when we take communion here in a moment, you'll, if your faith is in Jesus, you'll come forward and you will remember that Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. That's the serpent doing his best against the enemy. Oh yeah, humanity participated too. 
We chanted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So just like the fall began with the enemy in humanity colluding against God, our salvation comes with our enemy trying to strike down the Savior, us cheering it on, and God says, not today. And three days later, Jesus rises and is alive and is resurrected, and that is him showing that he is over Satan's sin and death. That there is good news even in our darkest chapters that there is the hope of life, that where the enemy comes to ruin our lives, Jesus says it this way in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus shows up and he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The serpent entered the story to destroy life. And Jesus is lifted up in the story in the center to show us where our life comes from and where our hope is found. And so this is your time. This is our time to respond to the story of our fall. You have a choice to continue to pledge allegiance to yourself and reject God. Or you have a choice to show some humility, to recognize that you have sin to recognize that your sin separates, that your sin causes death, that your sin brings shame and destruction, and to declare not your dependence from God, but your dependence to God. With humility to say, God, I can't fix this. I can't fix myself. God, you are good. You are wise. You are powerful. You are gracious. You are merciful and you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and as your King, as your sacrifice and as your Lord. And you demonstrate actively your your obedience, your humility, your dependence on God through baptism. We're going into the water. It's like Jesus going into the tomb. We're rising out of the water. It's like Jesus' resurrection. I identify with Jesus' death for me, and I live a new life resurrected with Jesus now and into eternity. That life is yours if you'd simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.